Welcome to the second season of Courage Incorporated, produced by the Walrus Lab. Join me as we hear courageous and powerful voices from the world of business and policy who have the incredible task of directing the future of their industries with courage. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. In 2019, 41% of full-time academic teaching staff were women, compared to 13% in 1971. The number of women among full-time academic teaching staff at Canadian public universities is growing, as is their presence in senior administrative roles, but not fast enough. Racialized people in leadership are underrepresented compared with their presence in the university population. In November of last year, more than 50 post-secondary institutions in Canada, 24 of them in Ontario, signed the Scarborough Charter, a national action plan to tackle anti-Black racism and promote Black inclusion in higher education. Our guest today, currently based in Kingston, Ontario, has been working hard to build an inclusive and welcoming campus community. A champion of inclusiveness in business, her research interests include managing diversity, racial and gender inequality in organizations, women in leadership, and strategic human resources. A strong collaborator who holds courage very dear, it's a pleasure to sit down with the current Dean of the Smith Business School at Queen's University, Dr. Wanda Coston. Wanda, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Duncan. I'm really excited about the opportunity to share with you today. Now, Wanda, you were born in the U.S. and you now reside in Canada, but you've also lived in Germany at a young age and you attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. You've had multiple firsts throughout your lifetime. Can you share with us some of your courageous journey that sort of brought you to where you are today? Where did it begin and sort of how did it flourish? Well, thank you for that first question. I have to say it's a bit uncomfortable when you infuse the word courageous into that journey because it's just what I did, right? We don't we don't start our lives off on this path and think that we're being courageous. We just do what comes natural to us or what we think is next. So I will say that when I talk to young people all the time, the one thing I say to them is just say yes. Just just explore and go do something that you think might have a neat impact. And if you don't like that, just do something else, right? So some of this was afforded to me, honestly, just by the fact that my father was in the military, which afforded a working class kid and her brothers to grow up in a foreign country. That transformed the lives of my brothers and I because it it, it forced us, especially as a U.S. citizen, where you think the U.S. is the center of the world, it forced you to go elsewhere and live in a different culture and learn about a different country's history and see where we fit in. And that was really a special time for us uh, because we grew up moving literally every three to five years as a youngster, you learn very quickly how to make friends quickly and to build deep relationships very fast. So I'm very comfortable in a lot of different settings that I think many people would view as uncomfortable. So you get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You get comfortable with being the outsider. Uh, and I think all of that developed in me some personal characteristics that just made it easy for me to make these transitions. I happen to be an off-the-chart extrovert, so meeting different people from different backgrounds and having fun and learning about people's lives is really a fun thing for me. So I would say all of those experiences as a youngster opened me up for what I could not have known would be the incredible journey of my life today. Well, and Wanda, you, you made the trip to Germany when you were 11. And, and for a lot of us who had kids that we've raised, we always view that as a very impressionable time in, in a young person's life. 
So it'd be interesting to kind of understand a bit more about the impact that move had on you. Well, what was your experience in terms of, you know, going from the U.S. to Germany? How inclusive did you find the community that you were a part of? That's a great question. And I will say back then, I mean, all countries have some other, right? That is exclusionary in its practices. And of course, Germany has a very painful history uh, that was something for me to learn. But I would say primarily because I was a U.S. citizen whose dad was in the military, Germans placed a high value on the university uh, uh, on the United States military because, of course, that was part of the liberation from the Nazi regime. And I think the second thing, however, was my parents, although working class didn't speak a different language, didn't have the opportunity to go to university, they were adamant that we learned the German culture and the German language. And because I was attempting to speak the German language, Germans would fall over, would be so excited that you were learning the language. They were very open to you. And of course, as a U.S. military kid, they were very grateful for what the U.S. had done. However, the U.S. military is made up of a wide variety of people. And there were several incidences where someone would, would come in with their family and some young kid who perhaps had grown up in the southeastern part of the U.S., which is known for its very racist views, and would say something to me in front of my friends that people would look at them and say, what is wrong with you? We don't have time for those kinds of things. We're all U.S. citizens, right? We're all collectively working together. And I remember this kid saying they didn't want to play with me. And I remember looking at him like, what do you mean you want to play with me? But I didn't have to do anything because my friends basically said, well, if you don't play with her, you don't play with us. Good luck with that. You're going to be here for three years by yourself. Have fun. And of course, within a week, the kid was back because you couldn't survive as a youngster in a foreign country with no friends. You just couldn't do that. So I would say that while the military certainly has its challenges, this notion of a common goal and a recognition that people from varied backgrounds will work together towards that common goal, typically a military goal. But it shifts everything to a very common denominator, which is we are alike, we're in a foreign country, we're having similar experiences, and who's got time to worry about these nuances? Like, seriously, we just want to have fun. And if you want to have fun, come hang with us. And so at a very early age, I didn't really understand racism, to be honest. I remember being 15, 16, coming back to the U.S., and my parents talking to me because we were going to Oklahoma and trying to prepare me for the kind of experience I would have because I was going to high school. And I remember laughing at them now because this must have been, oh my goodness, uh, late 70s, 78, 79, something like that. And me saying to them, this isn't the 60s. Come on, we're going to be 1980. Well, of course, I bumped up against a lot of racism for the first time in my life because in Germany, I didn't have that experience. By then, I was fluent in German. I knew all their cultures. We had embraced the, the German culture and were quite happy to live in that country. We felt respected. We respected them. And so to come to the U.S. and, and really hit that hard-nosed racism, well, you're different because you're African-American. That was a foreign concept to me. And I will tell you, uh, one of my first close friends happened to be white. And I remember thinking how blessed I was reflecting back that I was an athlete because in this little town, there literally were three different high schools. One was the wealthy high school. One was the African-American high school, literally on the other side of the tracks. 
And then the third one was the middle class high school where all the military kids from the military base went. And I remember people saying, what is with this girl? Because I spoke a foreign language. I was apparently smart. I took really tough classes, but I was an athlete. I was a leader. And people didn't know how to take me. The white kids would talk to me because I was African-American. The black kids thought I was being white. And I was like, what are you people talking about? And finally, people said, it's just Wanda. She's different. And when that shift happens, I think it's a seminal moment in my life. When I think about it, if I'd just been a regular kid, I think that transition would have been much more difficult for me as opposed to being a pretty good athlete and then having leadership capabilities, which put me in all these different cliques, if you will, these different circles. It allowed me to engage in that way. And I literally just became Wanda as opposed to the new African-American girl that moved here from somewhere. And Wanda, you continue to go on and, and play volleyball throughout your time at West Point, And you were the 31st black woman to graduate from that institution in its history. How did that time at West Point sort of shape your career and, and shape the worldview that you have today? Well, I, I would argue that was the wisest decision I could have made. And you're right. It is the single most important factor in where I am today. I, I often say I would not be where I am today had I not gone to West Point. First and foremost, um, even back then, West Point had a very holistic approach to not just recruitment, but who they admitted. It's called a whole cadet score. And they didn't just look at academics. They didn't just look at athletics. They didn't just look at your leadership capability. They didn't just look at to what degree you were getting back in the community. They looked at all of that collectively and literally thought about how would this kid add value to the academy based upon its mission of trying to produce this group of military leaders at the time for the future of the U.S. and the military. So that's a very different approach. It transformed my life. Uh, I often tell people I'm glad I didn't know how prestigious West Point was. I literally just thought it was a military school. And because I had been very successful in junior ROTC uh, in high school, and the people who had been successful were going to West Point. So I just assumed that was the next best thing to do. Had I known how prestigious it was, I probably wouldn't even have applied. Uh, and going there, one, you're, you're amidst just really, really smart people, but who are challenged every single day. West Point is about developing character duty, honor, country. It is really about grounding you in honor. Um, it's about holding yourself personally accountable at a level that most institutions do not hold people accountable. It's about being responsible for not just yourself, but for your peers. I remember we, we well, we used to call it these parents. You probably can't call it that anymore. But the first six to eight weeks as a new cadet, where they're literally indoctrinating you into this new culture. I was respond. You're in a what's called a squad, about ten to twelve people, and because I had a military background, I knew the military stuff like the back of my. I could march, I could salute, I could memorize stuff, uh, I could even understand weapons. But when it came to this thing called presentation itself in your uniform, things like shine and shoes and all, I was impeccable. I, I, I mean, I had this down. Right. Well, when you think about it, 
Most of those kids are civilian kids who've had no exposure to the military whatsoever, but were really, really, really smart. And some were really, really good uh, athletes. Well, they would get in trouble because it's a military school, right? You have to learn the military part. Well, I knew that like nothing. And I remember we come down to formation in my uniform, all proud of myself. And I would get in trouble every single day because it'd be like, cost it. How come your classmate over here looks like crap? Like, how come their shoes aren't shining? How come their shirts aren't? And I remember thinking to myself, that is not my problem, right? Like, that's their problem. But we had a saying, cooperate and graduate. So I had to figure out how to leverage what I knew to help my classmates because literally I was responsible for making sure they learned what I knew and sharing that. Little did I know later when we got to the academics, they'd be helping me out, right? Like organic chemistry is not an easy course. So learning how to do that stuff together, but being accountable for the success of your classmates, not just yourself, that's a game changer. And I think it's why I have this sense of responsibility to ensure that the experiences people have within whatever organization I'm leading is fair and equitable and transparent because you're responsible for all of it. There may not be, you're going to make mistakes. So one of the things we had to say was no excuse. There's no excuses, right? Yeah, there are explanations for what happened. Who cares? It didn't happen. And to be able to look someone in the face and say, there's no excuse. Fix it, right? That's an accountability at a level of responsibility that I don't think most people get, certainly not between the ages of 18 and 22. It doesn't happen. But that's what happens at West Point. The depth of accountability and responsibility, not just for your actions, but the actions of others and working together cohesively to make sure everyone is part of that team. I've never forgotten that. I've read that that when you move from your early life in the military to a corporate life back into the post-secondary world, that you really found that in the whole area of teaching and learning that you believe people really found your fit, your life's calling. And you really seem driven to want to help people find their best selves in that collaborative, inclusive academic environment. I've also read you saying that, you know, for someone who looks like me, these doors aren't always open and they're still not. And so as you continue to go forward now as, as a leader at Queens, what are you wanting to do to really open up those doors in the post-secondary system here for that kind of learning environment? But Thank you so much for that, uh, Duncan. This is the key. You've, you've hit the nail on This is the core right here, this nugget. And it's that growing up, I hate to say it, with all of the years of education I had, I didn't have a course from an African-American or an African-American woman ever. And so people have often heard me say that at the end of the day, particularly at a business school, we're providers of talent. And to me, I don't care if that talent is for-profit, not-for-profit, or government. But people often think I'm talking mostly about undergraduate experiences or master's experiences, particularly MBAs or professional master's programs. But because we're at Queens and Smith has an MSc and a PhD program, we're also developing the future talent of the professoriate, of the academy. And so it's a pipeline issue. If we don't bring in students, even as undergrads, and expose them to this thing called research and let them recognize that 
you could have a meaningful career in academia, in post-secondary education. They're not even going to consider it. And if we're not inviting in and creating a, a doorway for people from different backgrounds to one day be the professoriate, to be the person at the front of the classroom, then we'd miss the mark. And so it's all about how do we broaden that door? How do we entice people to understand what it is we do? What is the impact that we're having? Now, I would argue that in the U.S., particularly as it relates to business, nothing gets done on the social front if business isn't part of the solution. My perspective is in Canada, we have a little higher expectation on the role of government on those matters than we would in the United States. But fundamentally, when I left industry to come to post-secondary, it was because I started to realize the impact that I could have. I could have a certain level amount of impact running a division, running a geographical region of an organization. But if I moved into post-secondary, I would be developing the next generation of leaders and where each of those students went, you have this ripple effect on society that you are literally transitioning and changing what it means to be a high quality, impactful leader for society, not just for profit and the almighty dollar. So in my role now at a prestigious school like Smith and Queens, when we make these shifts fundamentally, and this is going to sound pie in the sky and hold hands, sing kumbaya, that is not who I am. We will impact education, not only in Canada, but in North America, because we're Queens and Smith, because we're prestigious, that if a Smith and a Queen starts to shift how it does what we do and have a positive impact, that will become the norm. That's why I'm here to think about the impact that these amazing people I get to call my faculty colleagues who are thought leaders in their particular discipline and doing exceptional research, the staff who provide tremendous supports to our students, the sheer types of experiences and resources we have available to us to support our students to have amazing learning experiences. It's transformational. And that's why I'm here to talk about how do we broaden the array of people who have the fortune of learning and teaching in Smith at Queens. That's why I'm here. What was it about moving to Canada in the first place that appealed to you? Because you were certainly building a very successful career in the U.S. There's obviously many more post-secondary institutions there. What was it about making the move to Canada that felt right at the time? Well, I have to say, uh, not to get political, the election of 2016. I was so disheartened um, by the events of what was happening, the transition that was happening in my country. Uh, and it happened to happen at a time where my son was now out of the house, so I was an empty nester. And I was exploring opportunities for academic leadership. And it's back to your, your earlier question, because I had spent so much of my developmental years in a foreign country, it it wasn't a fearful thing to me to think about going to a different country. 
I confess I didn't really know a lot about Canada at the time, but I just thought, how bad can it be? It's Canada, right? So when the opportunities came, I cast a wide net and it really just boiled down to, wow, this is a neat place. And again, I thought I could have a positive impact and to come to a country that wasn't so far away that I couldn't get back home. Little did I know we would have a pandemic, but that I couldn't get back home to see my family and friends, but I could have a very different experience and learn about what it means to be in a different country. Uh, Canada was beginning to have some serious conversations about gender parity. Um, despite what we say in the U.S., we are, we are far from there. And there were just some, I knew it was a, a place where it took in a lot of immigrants and newcomers. Um, and I have to say that while for sure we have racism in Canada, I'm treated far better in Canada than I am in my home country, for sure. It's, there's some very key ways in which Canada is a little bit more welcoming and less in your face about the challenges of coming from a different background, at least a different ethnic background. And when you moved to Canada and you, you moved to McEwen University, it was while you were there as dean of the business school, that university actually began to acknowledge and celebrate Black History Month, as I understand it. I know that you, you know, were heavily involved in helping that institution to better understand the importance of opening up to the importance of Black history, certainly in Canada and Western Canada in particular. And I'm curious how you saw trying to work to evolve the thinking of your colleagues in that institution. What did you learn from that and how are you applying that now that you're at Queens? Well, I recognize that first of all, you can't really throw things at people and get in their faces. Like you have to meet people where they are. People aren't where they are intentionally. I found it was just a lack of awareness of the different types of experiences non-white Canadians might be having in Canada. And a recognition that people bring all of themselves into that building or McEwen a series of buildings, that those experiences and how they're treated influences literally the capacity to which they can perform well. And when you start sharing these different experiences and acknowledging that it is quite difficult to hear that fellow Canadians from different backgrounds or newcomers to Canada might be bumping up against Canadian traditions and laws that have just been there for a very long time, you have to acknowledge that people are uncomfortable with that. Like I, I remember saying to some of my colleagues, look, I get that it is incredibly painful to acknowledge that perhaps your city, your province, and your country is not what you thought it was. I'm a U.S. citizen. I've been dealing with that for quite some time. But if we're unwilling to invite people in to talk openly about their experiences and to just post questions that would say, so what if this were happening? How would that make you feel? And get people to acknowledge that, wow, I was completely unaware because we're quite self-centered, myself included. We think everybody's having the same experience we are. They're not. And it's only when we stop and go, wow, it would have never crossed my mind that someone would not have the same rights and experiences that I have. Why would that not happen? It raises a flag 
And then the second part that I'm so proud of uh, my colleagues and leadership at, at uh, McEwen, which is also happening here at Smith & Queens, is their openness and willingness to explore and say, I don't understand that. Can you help me understand? But you can't beat people over the head with frying pan. Like you have to open up and say, can you imagine that this happens? And I said, um, the other thing, can you just accept other people's realities? Like the thing that frustrates me the most in North America in general is people will say things like, oh, that doesn't happen. Um, yes, it does, because it happened to me yesterday. It just doesn't happen to you. And it doesn't happen to people who look like you. But it happens to people who look like me all the time. And I get that that's frustrating for you. But those are the facts. I'm not having your experience. I'm having a very different experience. And here's how frustrating that is for me, right? So it's that openness and willingness. And in that keynote, the thing I love the most is I took um, a lot of research from Canada to talk about how Canada was dealing with this thing called diversity and inclusion, and particularly indigeneity, right? I mean, I had the courage to say that I think um, Canadians are quite proud that they don't have the issues we have as African-Americans in the U.S. until I remind them that from as an outsider, I actually think historically Canadians have treated indigenous peoples the way African-Americans have been treated in the U.S. And then people go, oh, yeah, that's kind of right. So now you understand that experience. The experience that indigenous peoples are having is similar to my experience in the U.S. So we're not we're not overly different, right? For two reports that came out uh, during the 2020-21 year at Queens that talked about issues of equity and inclusion and indigenization that I know you were heavily involved with, can you talk to us about what went into sort of pulling that together and getting a, a more open and transparent dialogue going about these issues? Yeah, I'm happy to say I'm very grateful uh, to Principal Dean, Provost uh, Mark Green, and most especially uh, the interim dean, Brenda Brower, who had the courage to spend time and gather the faculty and staff and students to talk about what surfaced from this Instagram account called Stolen by Smith, where students were courageous, though that's who was courageous, to actually publicly share the experiences they were having. And you can imagine our faculty and staff who were so committed to ensure students have an exceptional learning experience, how shocking that must have been for them to hear that. So what they were able to do is to create this uh, strategic action plan specifically focused on EDII, specifically focused on getting some KPIs, um, and then the really fundamental difference was Queens itself decided that, wow, we've not looked at this, but maybe we need to change and create different pathways into, into Queens and subsequently also into Smith, particularly in its undergraduate commerce program. And so these new pathways to entry resulted in Smith itself creating different prompts for the essays that would allow folks who had different backgrounds, first generation, members of the BIPOC community, 
working class students to talk about their lived experiences, which might be quite different from the traditional demographic of students who come into Queens and Smith. And that fundamentally shifts what happens. And then that requires us as faculty in particular to think about what are we doing in the classroom? How do we become more inclusive in the classroom? How do we consider different perspectives? So I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the things I say, I, I've been blessed to go to, to the continent of Africa twice to Tanzania. And I was taken aback uh, being in a Maasai village on commerce and how commerce was happening with this Maasai village with a cell phone that was generating commerce, social entrepreneurship, I would argue, to advance that economic stability of that village. Well, to what degree do we tell our students, particularly our undergraduate commerce students, about that? Commerce looks very different on the continent of Africa. It looks different in Central and South America. How are we inviting people with those experiences into the classroom, as opposed to going to the usual suspects of incredibly successful businessmen and women, but who have a particular career pathway, as opposed to, it can look a variety of ways, and those people are equally successful. And of course, now, thanks to the pandemic, one of the benefits is this wonderful thing called virtual conferencing, Zoom, Teams, WebEx, that we can import people from anywhere in the world to our classrooms now who will talk about their lived experience in commerce and the challenges from a global perspective, not just a uniquely Canadian and North American perspective. So I think those kinds of things that we have done have, have opened the door to students asking different types of questions, perhaps, than they have in the past. But it also means that we have to be intentional about thinking, how do we recruit faculty who are still exceptional, but just have different backgrounds? Because I have to tell you, I have students say to me, there's nobody who looks like me amongst the faculty. They're not wrong. They're, we have no Black faculty. I'm sorry, that's a problem, Right. So why is that? And we have to acknowledge, perhaps, probably, definitely unconscious, maybe subconscious, we created that. Somehow the mechanism we were using to assess the degree to which we thought someone was meeting our standards for a professorship here, somehow was eliminating people who look like me. That's a problem. That's the systemic nature of what we're trying to address both at Queens and at Smith. Well, Wanda, this has been a wonderful conversation. And, you know, as we start to bring this to a close, I'd be interested to get your thoughts about how leaders of businesses and leaders of business schools can do more to come together to really help to advance and drive this whole conversation and additional thoughts around the importance of bringing issues of social justice and environmental responsibility, better, more transparent governance into the experiences of students at business schools and then how they come out and contribute to the leadership in their countries going forward. Yes, I think this is critical. Um, I have not talked to a senior or executive business leader in the time that I've been a dean, both here or at Rekula, who isn't acutely aware of the importance of bringing in top talent 
that happens to come from different backgrounds because that heterogeneity of thought is so critical for businesses today, not only because it reflects their client base, but because they recognize you need these different perspectives to make better informed decisions. What that means is they have to be willing to invest their time, talent, and treasure with business schools to inform our young students on these are the kinds of competencies and skills and experiences we're looking for and the degree to which they're capable of working with people from significantly different backgrounds, perhaps with significantly different values, but to accomplish very meaningful outcomes for business today is critical. I think there has to be an investment in business schools. I think there has to be a willingness for industry to recognize that we need what I call wraparound services because a lot of, of certain aspects, certain sectors of business today are very much grounded in social networks. And when you're inviting in students who are more than capable, but who don't have social networks because they come from working class families or they're the first ones in their families to go to university, you have to build those networks so one of the things I'm incredibly proud of that we are launching right now, very grateful to Karen uh, Jackson Cox and her team through our uh, Career Advancement Center, is I recognize that these large number of students, we have percentage of students in our first year now from these different backgrounds, they don't have those connections to get an internship. So I have reached out to our advisory board, our global council, and our alumni network to say, I need jobs for these students because they don't have a network. And we're working in our career advancement center to help them develop their resumes and interviewing skills because their resumes don't look the same. Their CVs don't look the same either. And I'm very proud to say that we have 57 students right now who are come from BIPOC backgrounds, who are first gen, who come working class and are members of the LGBT2S plus community who need jobs, 57. And I'm happy to say that the minute I sent that call out, I had business leaders immediately respond. I can give you two positions. I got three positions. This is what we have to do. These aren't set-asides. These students are still going to interview. They're exceptionally talented. But if we don't provide access to those kinds of experiences, real employment in the real workplace with support, financial support and otherwise, so that they can benefit from that, then it's a lost cause. They'll never get to play in the same sandbox. It'll always be a separate sandbox, which will be viewed less than, by the way. The other piece I'm asking for from these folks is many of them have ERGs, employee resource groups. I want these students engaging with those resource groups. I'd like a supervisor as a mentor assigned to the students to help them understand how business is navigated. Because again, they don't have these experiences. I didn't have them as a kid coming up. So those are the kinds of things I can tell you that businesses can do. And then the other piece, of course, that's not, I'm not a fan of policies, even though I come from HR, but practices and procedures and processes. What is the mechanism by which people come into your business? What does that system look like? What are the criteria you're using to assess who's qualified and who isn't? And are we broadening that? Uh, is the search committee itself diverse so that it begins to understand and look at things a little different? 
If you're not doing that, you've got a problem. If the search committee looks a certain way, you are never going to hire people who look differently. And it's a it's a chicken or the egg situation. I'm not lying to you, but people who look like me, when we're looking at a company, we actually go to your webpage and we look for people who look like us. And if they're not there, you can talk until you're blue in the face and we're looking at you going, well, that's what you say, but I don't see anybody. And then if you tell me, well, you're going to be the first, right, that's what I want with my life, to be the first and the only. But we have to create these pathways in. We have to invite people in earlier. We have to be willing to look at our own internal processes and procedures and identify places that perhaps might be biased that we hadn't considered. And are we widening the array of assessment, characteristics, skill sets, that and experiences that we're looking for that would add value. The last thing I'll leave you with is this. We must consider that inviting someone in from a different background actually adds value. There's the detriment, right, where we say, well, this person doesn't have these things. And what I usually push back on is, you're right, they don't. But they bring this, which we never had before. Ever, 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 ever. Um, I'm sure there are many people out there who may think I don't deserve to be the dean of the Smith School of Business here at Queens because I don't have the right pedigree or I didn't go to the right schools or I don't have enough of the right publications. However, the value I bring is that I have a very different background and a very different perspective that has never existed at Queens in the history of its, its lifetime. That's value add. So we're talking about things differently. I'm asking different questions, which makes us as senior leaders look at things from a different perspective and will actually catapult us further ahead because of that, as opposed to what I don't have, right? So I think we have to start looking at the value people from different backgrounds bring to that community that will enhance the community as opposed to, well, they haven't done this that long because those things can be trained and developed over time. Thank you so much for the time that we've been able to spend in this conversation together, for your willingness to come to Canada and for your courage in helping to take on such important issues and to really raise and elevate uh, where we can go as a society, as you say, not just in Canada, but around the world. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. I wish you ongoing continued success. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It has been a sheer joy. I'm immensely honored to be invited. And I applaud the work that you're doing so that you're getting this conversation out. And my hope, as I'm sure it is for you, is that people listen and then have these own conversations in their own social networks, workplaces, families, and elsewhere. Thank you. Wanda, thank you for your time today and the insights you shared. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. This podcast is a production of the Walrus Lab. Thanks to our producer, Camille Hemming, and our team here at Deloitte. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and tune in again soon to meet our next courageous leader.